Hello, welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. Today, we're going to talk about the Holy Ghost. Um, if you're new or if you don't know, we we go to the Come Follow Me readings. We look for some areas where um, Latter-day Saints and Evangelicals might have conversation around some of these topics, um, places where they might have questions, places where often Latter-day Saints don't understand what they're saying. They don't understand what we're saying. So we're all about trying to um, pick those things apart so that you can have better conversations with your friends, your family members. This isn't to fight with strangers on the internet. This isn't um, to prove points. This is try and understand where they're coming from in part so that you can share with them where you're coming from and offer them some of the, the real gifts that are in our faith in a way they can understand. So that's what we're doing here. As as we've been doing, I'll remind you about the fair conference, August 2 through 4 in Provo. You can buy a ticket um, and come in person. I am speaking on the 4th. I would be delighted to meet you. Um, you also can watch online. Um, you can register for streaming for free on the FAIR website, fairlatterdaysaints.org. Might be .com. I think it's .org. Find out. You'll see. Um, one of the speakers I want to tell you about. I am so excited about this. Do you know that Don Bradley is speaking at the FAIR conference? If you do not know who he is, number one, you are in for a treat. And number two... Um, I feel a little bit jealous that you don't know his story yet. I will tell you the very short version of it. Don, if you are watching this, I hope I'm not embarrassing you and getting your details wrong. Don is a, is a proper historian, a trained historian, not someone like me who just loves history and, and how it fits into theology. Don's a historian's historian. Um, he, he studied, he grew, he grew up in the church, you know, becomes this academic and, and really ran into some issues that were hard for him to reconcile with our faith. He ends up leaving the church over it. On his way out, he writes this terrible letter to his bishop and venting all of the, the reasons why he's leaving. He spends a number of years outside of the church, um, and and has a reconversion experience where he comes to fall in love with the gospel again and wants to join the church again. And his first thought was, but what about the letter I wrote? I was so awful. Um, and so he goes back to that bishop and says, you know, gosh, I, I really would like to come back to the church, but I don't even know if it's possible because of the way in which I left. Um, and I'll get the exact quote wrong, but basically his bishop says to him of like, you can't repent in this church. Where can you repent? Like, it, 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 it's, it's going to be okay. That doesn't um, preclude you from coming back in, getting rebaptized, joining the church again. And that's what Don did. I had incredible respect for him. He also wrote a book on the lost 116 pages. I read that a couple of years ago. Um, fascinating. He, he writes a about the lost pages as a historian would, using the tools of history to try and recreate some of what was in that, um, showing the the people who would see, like, it's all the old, you should read it, it's a really good book. Anyway, Don is speaking at FAIR. I am just smitten that I get to be on the same stage as Don Bradley. So there you go. Um, let's see. 
Okay, today we are going to talk about the Holy Ghost. Um, we have come to the book of Acts in our Come, Follow Me readings. In the entire book of Acts, the Holy Ghost really starts to take center stage. Old Testament, center stage is God the Father. There are appearances from Jesus and from the Holy Ghost in the Old Testament. The Gospels, Jesus takes center stage. There are appearances from the Father and from the Holy Ghost. The Book of Acts, Holy Ghost is taking center stage. Really like driving the action of what's happening here. Um, so that is how we come to this. I don't actually have a specific verse for you, just because it's all of Acts, and here's where we are. I do also want to say, though, there is a lot going on in the narrative of this passage. It, the entire book of Acts, that's going to be true, but right here especially. And all we're doing is pulling out one little piece to talk about, what about the Holy Ghost as a topic, which is not giving you the whole arc of, of what's happening in these verses. If you feel like you are at a deficit and don't know that information as well as you would like, I will highly recommend to you any of the podcasts that are coming out of Scripture Central. They used to be called Book of Mormon Central, called Scripture Central now. Uh, amazing, amazing work. You can watch some of, the, some of their podcasts are over an hour long, and you will learn everything you need to know. But some of them are quite a bit shorter. Um, they, will, they will get you caught up with whatever you need. They'll take care of you. Um, anyway, back to our part and the Holy Ghost. We're going to talk about two different aspects of the Holy Ghost. First, we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, what that means for evangelicals, kind of compared to what it means for us. And second, we're going to talk about who has the Holy Ghost and when, right? The, it, it, gets a, it gets a little weird. We're going to start with the gifts of the Spirit, though. When evangelicals, or, or really any Protestants, are talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the first thing that often comes to mind for them is speaking in tongues. And if you took the whole evangelical group, maybe a third of them, that's my guess, that's not based on research, maybe a third of them are in churches where um, speaking in tongues is something that they do. Now, Latter-day Saints, I know that when you hear that phrase, you hear it as... Um, People who are given supernatural help to learn a foreign language, especially in the context of missionaries going out to serve. And we will get to that. However, what the this sort of one-third of evangelicals, this subset, often they're charismatics, Pentecostals, you know, whatever you want to call them, they are talking about a different type of speaking in tongues. Um, and I want to be incredibly respectful when I say this because I, I do not look down on these practices at all. I think these are incredibly faith-filled people. And I actually will get to this, but I think part of what they're doing is quite brilliant. And you would have a very interesting conversation with, with them about it. Latter-day Saints will get there. Um, but basically what their practice of speaking in tongues is, is someone will stand up in one of their services speak a language they would call it a heavenly language so it's not a known human language um to outside ears and i say this respectfully it sounds like gibberish it sounds like non-words um the the idea is the person who is speaking in tongues 
is receiving this language from God. They are speaking it out. They themselves do not know what it means. So it sounds also like gibberish to their ears. However, um, a person, somebody else in the congregation will act as interpreter. And that person will stand up and say, here is what um, this message is saying to us. It is very, that is very, very different than what happens in two thirds of the evangelical churches where speaking in tongues would, would, it would not be allowed in their services. Most likely if someone attempted to do so, they would probably be shut down pretty fast. Um, maybe, maybe some of them might allow it. Chances are great that that would not be allowed to happen. The, the main difference between these two groups is the charismatic side who uses this practice of speaking in tongues. They are very, very, very focused in on what is the spirit doing? How do we manifest the gifts of the spirit? How do we show that? It has a lot to do with um, emotion and intuition and, and really like feeling of the spirit. Whereas the evangelicals who don't practice this, it's not that they don't believe in the Holy Ghost. They do. Um, they just don't always know how to talk about that, especially in public worship. So it doesn't get talked about a lot, to be honest. They're a little suspicious of the of the charismatics who talk about the spirit quite so much. They think it's subjective. They think it's um, you're more likely to get off track with that than if you say, let's look at the Bible, let's look at the scriptures, what's already written down in a very like orderly, sane kind of way. And and they look at the charismatics and, and don't see that, and so they don't value it. This type of speaking in tongues that charismatics practice, it's called glossolalia. And it, it means it, exactly what I told you, the speaking of a language that is not a known human language. Um, just for information, that. There's a number of churches that operate in this charismatic world, and a lot of them are independent. Um, just like it's just like any evangelical, they are very, very independent-minded. Um, there are a couple of big groups, and you might recognize their name. The Assemblies of God is probably the biggest subset of that group. They've got about 70 million members around the world. They've been around since 1910. There was a famous revival in um, Los Angeles on Azusa Street. So it's called the Azusa Street Revivals. And this is the church that grew out of that. Um, Azusa Street Revivals are fascinating. It's a um, it, a group of people who are very much coming together who want to practice the gifts of the Spirit. The vineyard churches are also mostly in this area. Not all of them, but mostly they're in the, the area of churches that would speak in tongues. They don't count. Um, they don't count members. They count congregations around the world. They have twenty five hundred congregations around the world. I don't know how many members that is. They don't have a statistic for it. And then there's lots and lots and lots and lots of smaller independent groups. Often they have in the name of their church, like holiness, probably means it's a charismatic church. Apostolic probably means charismatic. Um, and, and, and lots of others. So there's many little subsets of this. Um, 
And when we say speaking in tongues, what we mean is that they will sometimes speak in this unknown language, not any language you can study, and somebody else has to translate it in it. Now, Latter-day Saints, when you think of the gift of tongues, you are thinking of the learning of a known language. This is not glossolalia, it's xenolalia. And that means they are supernaturally endowed with knowing a language that is a studyable human language. It's not a gibberish sounding language. And, and in our church, we have lots of examples of this throughout history. I read a bunch of them this last week. That was actually really fun. Um, but many Latter-day Saints seem surprised to learn that this is not the only way that the saints have ever understood speaking in tongues. And in fact, in the early days of our church, many people practiced this glossolalia, which is this heavenly language that sounds like gibberish. There's a fantastic essay on the church's website. If you search up speaking in tongues, it will come up for you. Um, that gives a really, really nice overview of this. It's like five paragraphs. You can read it in a minute. Um, in um, 1833, there's a church conference. Joseph Smith opens the church conference by praying in tongues. And what he was praying in was this glossolalia, an unknown gibberish sounding language. Like that's how he opened conference. Like, so this is something that people in the early days of our church practiced. You can, um, that particular incident, if you want the reference on that, you can read about that. Um, the website for the Joseph Smith papers um, in the documents volumes, it's in volume two. I didn't write down the page number, but if you search like speaking in tongues, you'll probably find it. Um, there's a, another great story. John Whitmer writes a letter that same year um, talking about how in one of their meetings, they were all singing in tongues. So singing in this glossolalia unknown language that the the group of the saints who had met together, somehow all of them were doing this in unison, which I thought was fascinating. Um, on that article on the church's website, it talks about Elizabeth Ann Whitney. She sings in tongues by herself most of the time, not with the congregation most of the time. She sings in tongues on many, many occasions. Brigham Young says that Speaking in tongues felt electrifying to him. The Nauvoo Relief Society Minute Book, which if you have not read, that's a fun ride. Um, their minute book talks about this. Here, here's actually a quote from it written by my girl, Eliza R. Snow. She's describing the scene for us. She says, Counselor Cleveland stated that she many times felt in her heart what she could not express in our language. And, as the prophet has given us liberty to improve the gifts of the gospel in our meetings and feelings the power resisting or resting upon, she desired to speak in the gift of tongues, which she did in a powerful manner. This is even a relief society they're speaking in tongues. Pretty fascinating. Now, do not get the wrong idea here. There are also many, many warnings in early church history of church leaders becoming more and more um, cautious about this, worried more and more, some, somewhat similar about how the, the larger group of evangelicals are today of 
is this emotionalism? What actually is going on here? Is this sound doctrine? What what is what is going on? So as time goes on, you see a lot more caution with it. Um, the there there I mean we do get that quote in the Relief Society Minute book, but there are also plenty of other quotes spoken by Joseph Smith and others. The minute book quote is. Um, it, it, here's what Joseph Smith says about it. If any have a matter to reveal, let it be in your own tongue. Do not indulge too much in the gift of tongues, or the devil will take advantage of the innocent. You may speak in tongues for your comfort, but I lay this down for a rule that anything that is taught by the gift, gift of tongues is not to be received for doctrine. So you see them start to get more careful. Um, eventually, the practice of tongues really just starts to, to fade out of fashion. At one point, very close to the end of his life, Joseph teaches, as to the gift of tongues, all we can say is that in this place, we have received it as the ancients did. We wish you, however, to be careful, lest you be deceived. Satan will no doubt trouble you about the gift of tongues unless you are careful. You cannot watch him too closely nor pray too much. May the Lord give you wisdom in all things. She's not outright forbidding it, but the words of caution are growing stronger and stronger. And in fact, by the time we get to 1900, there's an article in um, the Improvement Era magazine where a man has written in soda, sort of bemoaning the loss of speaking in tongues in the church. He's reflecting on the old era when this used to happen all the time. And they're saying it's so it's so sad we don't have that anymore. Um, and, and the reasons why we don't have that anymore, in part, increasing warnings from from leaders, from from apostles, from our prophet of saying, like, this is really something you've got to be careful with. But there also was a cultural shift right around 1900. Um, the Victorian era is ending. Um, the the mechanical age, factories are going. Um, science science isn't what it is today back then, but it's better than it was in the Victorian era. People are much more interested in kind of the physical, concrete world that can be provable through science, and less interested in the supernatural world, which they were very, very interested in the in the Victorian era. And so as that cultural shift happens, people also looked at the teachings of their faith in a similar way to say, like, yes, obviously the supernatural is part of this, but let's take a reasoned look at it and not get too carried away by the emotions. Um, so as unusual as this kind of worship sounds to Latter-day Saints today, it was very much practiced in, in the early days. Um they considered it a very sacred and special thing. If you had friends who are in like this charismatic community, they attend an Assembly of God church or something, you would probably have a fascinating conversation with them about like, we actually used to do that in our church. We don't practice it anymore. Um, but to be able to talk about that, I bet you would guess somewhere really good. Okay, on to the other part that I want to talk about here, which is... Um, who has the Holy Ghost? When do they have it? How do they know they have it? And I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you a bit about my experience. So 
one of the most common questions I have gotten from lifelong members sounds something like, um, what is it like to have the Holy Ghost now? Or what is your experience of the Holy Ghost like since you've joined the church? They're trying to get at um, maybe this underlying idea of you didn't have it before and now you do. Um, and sometimes those people are really surprised to hear my my story for myself is I've listened to the Spirit since I was in preschool, since I was a toddler. Right? My very first memory is is knowing something that I absolutely know is the Spirit. And I was three, right? So to be asked now, like, well, what's it like to have the Spirit? It's kind of a funny question to me. And I've never have really actually known how to answer it very well. Because um, those two things are hard to, to tease out. What's the difference before you have confirmation? And I just said to you, receive the Holy Ghost. And, and, and what's it like after? Um, on top of that, I think it can be a cultural belief among some people in our church that only people in our church have the Holy Ghost or only people in our church are able to listen to the Holy Ghost, which is certainly not true, is not what our leaders have taught us, but it's kind of a cultural belief, maybe from a bygone era that people have carried forward. Um, you may or may not know this. The missionary department just released a new version of Preach My Gospel, and I was delighted to read this change in it. And it has to do with this very question of what's it like for a person before they join the church having the Holy Ghost versus a person after they join the church still having the Holy Ghost. So here's what the old version of Preach My Gospel says. We receive the baptism of the Spirit through an ordinance called Confirmation. This ordinance is performed by one or more priesthood holders who lay their hands upon our head. First, they confirm us as a member of the church, and then they confer the gift of the Holy Ghost upon us. This same ordinance that is, this is the same ordinance that is referenced in the New Testament and the Book of Mormon. Now, all of that is true. All of that is correct. Absolutely none of that has changed. However, the new version of Preach My Gospel, I love what they have done with it because they add some extra nuance for clarity. And it really helps out somebody like in my situation who has listened to the Holy Ghost a long time before I got here, right? Here's what the new version says. The power of the Holy Ghost is the witness that comes to sincere seekers of truth before baptism. And it comes through the power of the Holy Ghost. All people can receive testimony of Jesus Christ and his restored gospel through the power of the Holy Ghost, meaning before their baptism. The gift of the Holy Ghost, about this the prophet Joseph Smith said, there is a difference between the Holy Ghost and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Cornelius received the Holy Ghost before he was baptized, which was the convincing power of God unto him of the truth of the gospel. But he could not receive the gift of the Holy Ghost until after he was baptized. And that very perfectly describes my experience, and I think the experience of most converts. If a missionary is teaching someone about the gospel, how is that person ever going to know that it's true 
if the Holy Spirit is not somehow doing something in them to testify that it is true. If a person is not to be taught the gospel until their 40s, the, the Holy Ghost might still be directing their life through many decades of this experience here and that experience there that's going to prepare them to hear some things about the gospel and recognize the Holy Ghost when they feel it. That was very much my experience. I absolutely recognized, I know what this feels like. I know what it feels like to listen to the Spirit. And now here I am feeling it and quite surprised when that was initially happening because it was in a quite unexpected place for me. So there we are. I hope that brings you a little bit of clarity on kind of some of the differences of how evangelicals talk about the Holy Ghost. They're very focused on a very specific version of the gift of tongues. We also used to practice that gift of tongues. Now we really consider it something different. Um, and the Holy Ghost is available to every human being everywhere who who can open their heart to listen. What happens at confirmation is a very it's a very specific giving of the gift of the Holy Ghost. Um, but don't be confused and think that people outside of our church never have the Holy Ghost. They would probably like giggle at that because like, they know they have the Holy Ghost. So there you go. Join us next week. We're going to talk about um, the whole conversation of like, what is a Christian? Why do Latter-day Saints call themselves Christians? Why do evangelicals get so upset at that? It will be a great talk. I'm looking forward to it and I will see you then.